presents A Legacy of Faith, the sermon by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, October 6, 2019. The apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. It's not a surprising request, really, because in the few chapters that precede this request, which we've heard over the last few weeks in worship, Jesus has told, or maybe warned is a better word, his disciples, that following him is going to involve letting go of possessions, keeping their eyes so fixed on God that all other relationships are seen only in that light. And now, in this reading, he adds, to be one of my disciples, to anticipate and participate in the kingdom that is coming, you have to forgive. When someone comes to you and is repentant, You must forgive them, not just once, but seven times. And not just seven times over a lifetime, but seven times a day, if that's what is required. I like to tell myself that this is Jesus just speaking in hyperbole, like that part about the tree being tossed into the ocean, or that it's symbolic, the number seven being a symbol of wholeness in the Hebrew scripture. Because I don't know about you, but forgiving the same person seven times a day, every day for the rest of my life, sounds awful. I think that forgiving is one of the hardest parts of trying to follow Jesus. It's hard enough to forgive when someone is merely thoughtless and does us some small injury, not through malice, but just from lack of attention to our needs the kind of small forgetfulness that happens whenever human beings are living in close proximity. Did you seriously drink all the coffee when you know I have to leave at 7.45 and do not have time to make another cup, another pot? Did you seriously do that? Again? Did you honestly leave my sneakers on the back deck when you came in with the dog, even though the rain is starting? These are the kinds of small slights that are easy to to overlook when we are, in general, feeling loved and cared about in the world. They're simple to get over when our friend or family member or housemate says says to us, I'm so sorry, I wasn't thinking. But when we are not feeling secure or loved or appreciated, when the person doesn't apologize, That one lone dish left in the sink day after day, right after we've finished doing the dishes, that can become a covert message that this is what we are valued for, that our parents or children or housemates secretly harbor the belief that we are put here on earth to serve them. Can I get a witness? Then, despite the tininess of the harm done, it's one glass in the sink. And the high probability that that the message we are hearing has nothing to do with what the other person was trying to say. Then, when it's a pattern, it can become bitterly hard to forgive. Even these tiny, minor slights 
cut us and dig at us. But this is precisely what Jesus tells his followers to do. Forgive seven times a day if necessary. And what I'm talking about is just the very first baby steps of forgiveness. I know many people in this room have had much more difficult and painful things that they've had to work to forgive, to lay down and walk away from. And Jesus says, that's what I'm calling you to. It is no wonder that the next word out of the apostle's mouth is, help, increase my faith, because otherwise we are not going to be able to do any of that. We can't let go of loving our possessions. We can't keep our eyes so firmly on God that all of our other relationships are in that light. And we can't just keep forgiving. It's too hard. Increase our faith. Make it possible. To which Jesus says, you're looking at this all wrong. Faith the size of a mustard seed will enable you to do impossible things. Impossible things like uproot mulberry trees and hurl them into the sea. Impossible things like forgive someone who offends against you seven times per day, as necessary. You are thinking of this all wrong. Faith is not a thing separate from you. It is not something you can quantify and measure. You already have enough. Now, it may be that the apostles, faced with all these difficult teachings about following and giving up and forgiving, wanted a bit more clarity, a bit more certainty. Perhaps they thought if they truly grasped what Jesus meant, if they just understood him, then surely they would have the ability to do it. But they had the action and the understanding reversed. In the Gospel of Luke, faith doesn't begin as intellectual endeavor. It's not primarily about understanding or agreeing to a certain set of ideas or propositions. Faith shows up in action. In Luke, Jesus' seekers and followers model this for us. That model looks like the men who carry their paralyzed friend through the roof of a house so he can be in the presence of Jesus. And it looks like the woman who, having received forgiveness, shows her gratitude and devotion by pouring expensive ointment over Jesus' feet and washing them. Faith looks like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and reached out to touch Jesus. Just that, she reached out. For us today, faith still begins not with what we think, but with what we do. It is doing what needs to be done for life to flourish for ourselves and the people around us. These don't have to be remarkable or heroic things to be faithful. Just steady things. Faith is going to work and doing a good job. It's telling the truth. Faith is praying for a neighbor with or without being asked. It's showing up for rallies, not just clicking on the stories about them online. It's taking food to the shelter. It's feeding your family tenderly. It's letting go of anger at small things. It's voting even when the choice of candidates seems discouraging. It's taking a turn in the church kitchen and showing up to teach Sunday school. 
Faith looks like praying for the safety of our Jewish neighbors during the high holidays and refraining from food at your desk during Ramadan if your office mate is Muslim. Faith is listening to the same story that your loved one has told a million times but needs to tell again because it helps them remember who they are. It's giving and loving and, yes, forgiving. It is made up of quite simple acts day after day, all pointed in the same direction. Because what our acts of faith betray to the world is not so much a set of doctrines as what Marcus Borg describes as our heart faith. Heart faith is characterized by three things, trust, fidelity, and vision. To have faith of the heart, to have a heart faith, is to rely on God, to trust in God for our grounding and our safety, to rest in the idea that whatever current situation we are experiencing, there is goodness at the end of it. There is God beneath us, upholding us, in front of us, calling us into the future, and beside us, accompanying us. This is not knowledge that we assent to. It is presence that we experience. Some of us have direct experience of this often, in prayer or in service, when singing or reading or studying scripture, sometimes when we are alone in the woods or when we are here in church. When the voice of the inner critic is quiet and a deeper reality can speak into the stillness at the center of our souls, saying, God is here. You are loved. It is enough. We most of us lose sight of this reality from time to time. We lose sight of whose we are and who we are. Sometimes as many as seven times a day we lose sight. Sometimes we lose sight of this reality for days or weeks or months at a time. But it is not a reality that changes. It is not a thing that once lost is lost forever. In fact, it is always reclaimable. And we can practice waiting for it, not to earn it, to experience it, and to root and ground ourselves in the goodness of it. Faith of the heart is also characterized by our fidelity. When we've experienced the trustworthiness of God and know our own belovedness, we have a sense of God's faithfulness to us, and we want to be faithful to God, committed to the goodness we have experienced. And this is helpful in those days and weeks and months when our direct experience of God's presence and goodness may seem far away and remote. When, with all the best will in the world, we show up to our meditation practice, or to choir rehearsal, or to take our turn at Hoyt Street. We show up at peace rallies and prayer sessions, and still, we feel alone and uncertain. Untouched by that sense of God's presence and immediacy that was once ours. Then it is commitment that carries us through. Then our faith consists of commitment to the reality, that past reality that we experienced, trusting that God is faithful 
we remain faithful, even when we don't feel especially like it. When we wonder if going to one more peace rally or one more action for protecting the climate will make any difference in the world, when we wonder why, no matter how many meals we take to Hoyt Street, no matter how much we donate to Clackamas Service Center, the need just seems to grow. When we wonder, am I really listening to my own words that I'm praying, or am I just repeating phrases that I memorized? Then we keep on, trusting that there is more ahead that we cannot yet see. Which leads to the third characteristic of heart faith, vision. That despite the suffering that is part of all human life, we remain committed to a vision of goodness that is deeper than all suffering, more lasting than human pain. A vision that says one day, finally, we will all be caught up in that love and light forever. Until that day, we belong to the light and we can spread it. To live in faith requires a radical centering of our lives in God. And when we center our lives there, our trust naturally deepens. And when our trust deepens, it transforms the way we are able to see ourselves, our lives, and the world. So when the disciples ask Jesus to increase their faith, he tells them, you have more than enough. It is your heart, your life. This is the kind of faith that Timothy inherited from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. It's the kind of faith that some of us inherited from our mothers and grandmothers, our fathers and grandfathers. If not in our own home, not in our first family, then our mothers and grandmothers and aunties in the household of faith. The kind of faith that shows up stubbornly, carrying a hot dish, some strategies for organizing, and a deep embrace of love. The kind of faith that does not ask for thanks for showing up, because it's what you do. This passage from the Gospel of Luke is a tricky one because it uses the language of slavery, which is justly and rightly upsetting to us. It's a tricky passage to talk about. So a few things to contextualize. One, in the Roman Empire, anywhere from 30 to 50% of people at any given time were enslaved. It was an ugly system of oppression in which the victors in war would enslave members of the group they had defeated. But it was not the same system of chattel slavery based on race which white people in America practiced. It was not premised on the lie of one race being superior to another. It was simply an act of war. It was one of the evils of the ancient world. That's part of the context. Another piece of context is that Jesus uses the metaphor of slavery to talk about his own role, to talk about himself and his role among the human family, subverting categories of worth and inclusion. But just for this moment, let's set aside that whole conversation and let's hear those words in a way that makes sense in our world. When your employee finishes the first of their routine tasks, 
You don't interrupt their work to shower them with praise. You just expect them to get on with the next task. It is the same with the life of faith. It is the same with the grandmothers and the mothers and the aunties, the ones who show up when there is trouble, who strategize when there is a food drive or a protest to go to, who pray when their loved ones are in need. They are living, rooted, and grounded in love, knowing that their lives are wrapped up in God's life following the path of Jesus, joyful in that trust. They live holding on to a vision of a new day when the peace they know in prayer, the justice they have seen in vision, will belong to everyone. As we come to the table to join with Christians across the world receiving communion together on this Worldwide Communion Sunday, I invite you to keep in your heart and in your prayers, the ancestors whose faith has brought you here today. Ancestors from your biological family, your adopted family, your church family. And I invite you to keep in your heart the places in the world that most need the vision of peace. And I especially invite your prayers for men and women in America caught up in our prison system, for inmates and lawyers, for judges, advocates, and guards, for formerly incarcerated people and parole officers, that a system that is broken may be made whole. Rooted and grounded in God's love, sure in the faith that we have inherited, let us come to the table to share in God's grace and love. Listen, listen, listen.